Let's open our Bibles together tonight to Luke chapter 6, verses 13, or yeah, 13 to 16. At daybreak, he, Jesus, called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Ever since I was a young boy, I can remember learning about the disciples. We know their names, we know a bit of their story, but they kind of managed to fall kind of in between the cracks of our stories and in our minds. And the 12 disciples really are a fascinating study because they were some of the most common men that you could ever find. Yet they were called to an extraordinary and very uncommon mission. They were tasked with bringing the gospel to all people in all nations in all the world. Twelve very ordinary men. Each of them was kind of unique in their own way, and we see it in the scripture. So Simon, who eventually becomes Peter, is this strong, impulsive, dynamic speaker. Andrew, his brother, on the other hand, is more reserved, more laid back. Matthew, who is an ex-tax collector for the Roman government, taxing the, his very own people, his own Jewish people, stands beside Simon the Zealot, who had once been part of a Jewish sect that hated the government and wanted to overthrow Roman occupation. And so while they were unique, they actually did share a lot in common as well. In fact, we read in the Gospels over and over again that Jesus thought they were rather slow. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark in particular, you see over and over and over again that John or Jesus' disciples just don't get it. In fact, many of us who have been to Horizon College have had a professor named Dr. Martini who had a professor himself who was a Scottish man who used to describe the disciples in Mark's Gospel as wee dafties in Scotland. Dummies. So we see it over and over again. We know that at least four of them, if not more, were fishermen. We also know that those same four and probably more were, were childhood friends, friends rather, from a place called Capernaum. They knew each other. And the other ones were simply craftsmen or tradesmen. But the thing that they shared more than anything else was the fact that these men were as ordinary as they come. Completely common, totally basic. I want you to hear tonight, and I want you to hear in our time together over this series that we're calling the Twelve, where we're looking at these disciples and what they teach us today, about the fact that even though they were average, it was actually in that averageness, it was in that simpleness, in that basicness, that their sacrifice became all the more heroic. And their lives teach us a lot about how we can live today. Because we read in Luke chapter 18, Peter stands up and speaks on behalf of the disciples, and he says, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. The disciples have left, had left houses and families and friends, jobs, land that they owned, boats, and they simply walked away from it all to follow Jesus. So yes, they were basic, and they were average men of the time. And that's kind of the point. And we actually see in the Gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we get a really good look into the lives of these men. 
We get to see all of their shortcomings, all of their misunderstandings. And what's fascinating is that one of the reasons why I believe in the Bible and one of the reasons why I believe this story is because if you were going to put a piece of propaganda together to prove that your God was the God of all, if you were going to prove that Jesus was somehow this man, would you not make every single person connected to him a man or a woman of valor and nobility and character, perfect in every way? But that's not what we find in the Gospels. That's not what we find in the New Testament. In the Bible, we see over and over again that these are not portrayed as mythical men. They are not somehow above the others. In fact, over and over and over again, their simple humanity is highlighted. But it's because of their normalness that their sacrifice stands in stark comparison to the rest of their lives. The disciples of Jesus actually give color and life to the stories of Jesus. They do more than just act as people in a story. They round it out. They show us how we can read ourselves into the narrative. But what's amazing is that they almost always remain as kind of background characters. They rarely, if ever, really take front and center stage. And so we start to ask ourselves, what, what was the experience of the disciples? What, what was it actually like to walk with Jesus? What was it like to, to carry his message into all of the world? And according to the book of Acts in the New Testament that comes right after the Gospels, we see that the resurrected Jesus, after he had raised, been risen from the dead, he lived and walked and, and, and was with the disciples for 40 days. Then after his ascension back to heaven, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit at something called Pentecost and began speaking in different languages and did many wonders and signs, the scriptures tells us, and began to see thousands of people choose to follow Jesus. Absolutely amazing. But, and this is really important, it was not all sunshine and lollipops for these guys. In fact, these men also endured some of the most wicked treatment and hatred that was possible in their time. And despite many of them being killed for their faith, they never compromised what they believed in. They never compromised how they followed Jesus. In fact, Jesus had told them to expect the world to hate them. Listen to what John chapter 15 says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This is Jesus speaking. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So what, what in the world motivated these men to give up everything? To knowingly walk and follow Jesus into persecution and hatred? knowing that eventually their faith may get them killed. What in the world motivated them to do that? What made them sacrifice everything, even their own lives for their belief in what Jesus had shown them? And that's what this series is all about. We're going to look at the disciples and try to figure out what they can teach us so that we can follow Jesus better today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, and thank you so much for these men that have gone so much before us. That, that, Father, they show us the way to follow you. God, thank you that you saw fit to choose 12 very, very ordinary.
ordinary people, just like us, to bring your message into the world. God, tonight would our eyes be open. Would we sense your spirit moving in us and would we hear your truth? The little nuggets that you leave for us, the crumb trail, if you will, God, of evidence and proof that you love ordinary people like us. Thank you. So like we saw in the beginning here, this scripture verse, uh, or sorry, like we saw in the opening scripture verse, these are the disciples. I'm just going to go through them again. Simon, who was named Peter by Jesus, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Now, I'll be honest, it would be very difficult to do a sermon on each one of these disciples for a very good reason. There are some of them that have virtually nothing written about them. In fact, I figured what better way to start a series on the disciples by going with the ones that have very, very little written about them. That should be easy, right? So that's what we're doing. We're going to start by looking at three disciples right now that have very, very little written about them and see if God can show us some truth for us to live. Tonight we're going to look at James. We're going to look at Simon and Judas. Not the bad one. Let's start with James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, what's interesting about this guy is that very, very little time, or little is written about him. In fact, he's only mentioned a very few times in Scripture. And do you want to know what it says about him? Any guesses? Only his name. That's it. That's all we know. It's just his name. He only shows up in lists. That's it. Lists of the disciples being called, like we just read at the beginning of this, our time together. Lists of disciples attending a few key moments of Jesus' ministry and beyond. And then lists of people that witnessed the death of Jesus. That's it. Just his name, among other names. If this James that we read about wrote anything, it's been lost to history. If he ever asked Jesus questions or did anything to stand out among the other disciples... Scripture never records it. James never attained any level of, uh, of fame or notoriety. In fact, he even had one of the most common names of the time. Nothing about James really stands out. So I figured that would be the place to start a sermon. I like a challenge, I suppose. But listen to this. James is, we're, we're told one other thing about James in the New Testament. And it's his nickname. And we see it in Mark 15, 14, where he is referred to and given the nickname James the Less. That is not a good nickname. <laughs> James the Less. The Greek word here is literally, it's micros. And this word literally translates directly to little. That's it. There's no spiritual meaning. There's no specialness to it. He's literally James the Little. Now, we don't even know why he's called that. It could be because he was small. That's possible. He could be short, and they just decided to call him short. It could be because he was young. In fact, it probably, more likely than anything, is simply a nickname to distinguish him from the other James in the Disciples, who was considerably older than he was. So that's probably why 
He was given the nickname James for less. All in all, it's not a very good nickname, and you should probably be thankful that whatever nickname your friends have given you is probably better than that. Probably. <laughs> so how in the world do we connect this obscure, strange figure that we know nothing about to our lives today? What does James the Less teach us? Well, let's just look a little bit more at what, it doesn't, what he doesn't show us. James shows us no great leadership at all. He doesn't lead anything. He doesn't proclaim anything. He has no future for the, or he has no vision for the future, rather. He doesn't seem to ask any profound or critical questions. And if you look at some of the questions that the disciples asked, the threshold was pretty low to get in the book. And at the end of the day, only his name remains. So how is it that 2,000 years later, I stand on this stage and I talk about him? I believe it's because of the simple truth that Jesus chose him. And Jesus never, ever gave any indication that he was upset with that choice. No New Testament writer ever talks about James in a bad light. He is simply just forgotten. Jesus saw fit to make this man a disciple, to take his message of hope and reconciliation and salvation to the world. Jesus chose him. Jesus trained him and empowered him to go out and to become what I believe would have been the type of man that ended up in the list that we find in Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, verses 33 to 38, we read about this great cloud of witnesses, the men and women that have gone before us that paved the way for our faith. And this is what it says about them. And they're talking specifically at the beginning about some of the Old Testament people like Daniel. But it says, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now it gets more obscure. Listen to this. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Catch this. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. So even in his obscurity, even in the fact that he only shows up in random lists in the New Testament, we can be certain, and I believe with certainty, that if Jesus was asked, who are the people that fit that description in Hebrews, he would have undoubtedly said, my son James the less. And we know that at the end of time, James will receive his full reward in eternity for his faithful Next, let's look at Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is a very, very interesting person. At one point in time, Simon would have been part, or was part, of a political party known as the Zealots. That's where he gets his name, Simon the Zealot. He was part of this political party. And here's a quick commentary uh, and history lesson that I found on the disciples that kind of describes this a little bit. 
Here we see that the historian Josephus described four basic parties among the Jews of that time. So Josephus wrote during the time that Jesus would have been alive. So he's writing about what's going on from a Jewish perspective. The Pharisees, we hear about them all the time. The Pharisees were fastidious about the law. They were the, they were the religious fundamentalists of their time. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were religious liberals. They denied the supernatural. They were also rich, aristocratic, and powerful. They were in charge of the temple. The Essenes are not mentioned in scripture at all, but both Josephus and another Jewish historian, Philo, describe them as ascetics and celibates who lived in the desert and devoted their lives to the study of the law. The fourth group, the Zealots, were more politically minded than any group besides the Herodians. The Zealots hated the Romans, and their goal was to overthrow the Roman occupation. They advanced their agenda primarily through terrorism and surreptitious acts of violence. So it is noteworthy that for the remainder of Simon's life, he retained the nickname Simon the Zealot. And here's why. Because it's very likely that after Simon had left this political movement and began to follow Jesus, that he never lost his fiery, passionate zealousness for God. He never did. The fact that Simon continued to keep that name tells us, really, with a lot of certainty, that Simon was that guy. Simon was that loud, brash, bold, courageous man that let nothing stand in front of him, would look face, look death in the face, rather, and say, you can take me, because, of, but I will not move on what I believe. But here's something else that's interesting. When Matthew and Mark list the twelve, they list Simon just before Judas Iscariot. That's the bad one not the good one we're going to talk about in a minute. But here's what else is interesting, if we take that thought a little bit further, and this is why it matters. Because when Jesus sends out the disciples two by two in Mark chapter 6, it's very likely, it seems very likely, that Simon and Judas Iscariot were actually a team. So Simon the Zealot and Judas the Betrayer were a team that were sent out together. Why does that matter? I think it matters because I think that Simon just like Judas, were attracted to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. You see, Simon was a zealot. Simon believed that the Jewish nation needed to be raised above everything else. They were the chosen people of God. God had promised them to take them out of slavery, and never again would they be enslaved. And so Simon believed very much that the nation of Israel needed to be lifted up, that that pride needed to be restored. And when he met Jesus... His first thought was, this man is going to be the Messiah. He is the new king. He is the one that's going to overthrow the Roman occupation, and I'm going to follow him. Judas, on the other hand, clearly what we know about him later in the Gospels is that Judas very quickly and seemingly easily sold out Jesus to the Roman authorities and to the Jewish people and to the Jewish temple. You see, for Judas, he wanted to get close to Jesus because he thought Jesus was king. And when he found out that Jesus wasn't the king he was looking for, he turned his back on him. Simon, on the other hand, Simon the Zealot, the one who looked to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the law, all of the Torah, everything that he had been taught ever since a young age, looked at this Jesus and somewhere along the journey had a life-transforming moment where he began to realize that this Jesus was not about to bring about an earthly kingdom, but was going to bring about the kingdom of God to the people on earth. And Simon's heart changed. And I think that the gospel writers just wanted us to see when we approach Jesus, it matters what we think he's going to do for us. 
Because if we come to Jesus expecting that he's going to be the king, and he's going to be the one to overthrow all of our problems, and he's going to make everything easy and lighthearted, I think that we're really mistaken. We have to come to Jesus because he's the king of the universe. And because his kingdom is not of this world. Something else that I find interesting about Simon, and if you've watched The Chosen, you've probably picked up on this a little bit. Simon hated the Romans. He hated them. They had occupied their land. They had taken away the, the, the Jewish people's rights and freedoms. They had basically enslaved them. And so Simon would have had a very hard time getting along with Matthew. Now Matthew, which we'll learn about in a later sermon, Matthew was an ex-tax collector for the Roman government. A Jew himself, he went to work for the Roman government to collect taxes from his very own people. So when Simon joined the disciples, I bet without a shadow of a doubt that he would have had a very hard time getting along with Matthew. In fact, at one point in his life, I believe that Simon would have gladly and proudly killed Matthew and thought he was doing the will of God. But through the power of Jesus... Through the power of Jesus and the power of serving together, this is really important. By the power of Jesus and by serving together, Matthew and Simon became brothers. They became brothers who worshipped together, brothers who served together, brothers who brought the gospel to the world and who relentlessly followed Jesus no matter what came up. And so can I just say, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what relationship in your life is hurting right now. But if God can somehow manage to bring a Jewish zealot who wanted to kill the Romans and then a defected Jewish person who was taking money from his own people to give to the Romans, if Jesus can bring those two people together, he can bring about reconciliation in your life. But we can't forget that it requires us to not only believe in Jesus, but it requires us to obey him and to serve him and to serve together. God can do anything in your life. Simon experienced a dramatic shift in thinking. And instead of fighting for this kingdom on earth that he thought he so clearly understood, he began to partner with Jesus to bring about the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now what happened to Simon? We certainly don't know what happened to James, because like I said, he's not really talked about at all. But what happened to Simon? Well, many early sources say that after Jerusalem fell to the Romans sometime in 70 AD, sometime in those, that decade, Simon actually took the gospel to the British Isles and began preaching Jesus' message there. But unfortunately, like so many other biblical characters in the New Testament, he just simply disappears. And there really is no concrete evidence for our 21st century minds. There, you know, there's no tomb, there's no uh, direct history written by somebody that said we executed him. But all early sources show us and tell us that Simon was killed for preaching the gospel. That he went to his grave believing that Jesus was who he said he was. And believing that no matter what anybody threatened him with, he would remain true. And again, we see that glimmer of that zealousness in Simon, don't we? And before we move on, I just, I love how this one author describes Simon. He says this, This man who was once willing to kill and be killed for a political agenda within the confines of Judea 
found a more fruitful cause for which to give his life in the proclamation of salvation for sinners out of every nation, tongue, and tribe. Now, let's talk about Judas, son of James. Like I said, this is not Judas the betrayer Iscariot. So when I say the name Judas, try to focus. This is good Judas. Shouldn't be so mean to Judas Iscariot, but he gets his own sermon, so we'll get to him later. In Matthew 10, 3, we actually see that this Judas son of James has a number of names. He actually has a few nicknames, depending on uh, where you find him in Scripture and depending on which kind of manuscript you read. But we see that he's Judas son of James and John. But we also see that in Matthew, he's referred to as Thaddeus, while other manuscripts actually call him Levius. So he has three names, and, and some historians call him the man of three names. Don't know why, but we actually get a little bit of a glimmer into why he has those names. So Thaddeus, this name actually means something akin to heart child. And it was likely it had kind of an, an endearing form to it, where we see it in other places in history is this kind of this sense of this uh, childlike spirit or something like that. Levius, on the other hand, means breast child. Now, hold with me. It's really meant as a bit of a put down. Everywhere else we see it. Because imagine a baby nursing at his or her mother's breast. Now, it's kind of the Jewish equivalent of a mama's boy. That's what's being said here. So you get this idea that, that, that Judas, the son of James, Thaddeus, Levius, all these different names, it, it gives us this idea that he was likely a very tender-hearted person. Somebody that cared deeply, somebody that felt deeply, somebody that, that cried every single time they watched Friends. Every time. Just somebody that, that had this kind of softness about them. And why this is important is because of the fact that he stands right next to Simon the Zealot that we just talked about. The fact that he was this tender-hearted person was actually a beautiful thing. And I want us to look at the exchange between Jesus, Jesus and Thaddeus, or Levius, or Judas, the son of James. We'll just call him Judas for now. So we pick up in John 14, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus? The miracle working Son of God. And that's what he tells you? He says that whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. He is saying to the disciples, gentlemen, Because you love me, he loves you. And because he loves you, I love you. It's this wonderful moment of Jesus just expressing how much he cares about these men and what he's calling them to. But then John, the gospel writer, and one of the disciples himself adds this piece. He says, then Judas, look, he says, not Judas Iscariot. Even he's trying to make sure that we don't get this mixed up. Then Judas said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us? Think about what's happening here. There's, there's, there's nothing happening between these two verses. It goes right from one to the other. Jesus speaks, Judas responds. 
Judas has just heard Jesus tell him that they, the disciples, can be loved by the Father if they love him. And the very first response from Judas isn't, wow, God, help us to love you more, or, or anything like that. Judas's first thought, what about the rest of the world? Why, why would you just choose to show us, Jesus? What about my friends? What about my family? What about the people that I love and care about? What about them? You can actually see his tender heart played out in this very simple scripture verse. He doesn't say anything brash or critical. He doesn't call Jesus out. He doesn't stand firm like Peter does. He doesn't rebuke Jesus like Peter once did. His question is full of meekness and gentleness and caring. He truly could not comprehend that Jesus would manifest himself to this group of men and not to the rest of the world. But listen to what Jesus says back to him. In verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Jesus says, it's available to everyone who chooses to love me and obey my teaching. In other words, don't worry, my son. Don't worry, Judas. The world is going to get an opportunity to respond to me. I will make myself known. In this moment, Jesus sees Judas in all his gentleness and concern, and he doesn't rebuke him. If you're familiar with the gospel story, you'll remember that at one point, Peter stands up to Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So it's not that Jesus didn't have the capacity to kind of rail against somebody, but Jesus sees Judas in this moment, and he loves him, and he responds in kind with gentleness and meekness and this promise that anyone who seeks him will find him. So what happens to Judas? Well, that love for people and that love to spread the gospel of Jesus, to introduce Jesus to people in the hope of his message, actually compelled Judas to take the gospel north to a royal city in Mesopotamia called Edessa. And it's, it's widely believed that in that city, Judas actually went and healed the king of Edessa, a man named Abgar. And he saw many people come to faith. And if you search Judas, son of James, on Google, you'll notice that his traditional apostolic symbol, kind of the, the, the symbol that goes along with him as a disciple, is um, a club. You know why? Because it's, it's believed that he was clubbed to death for his faith. That is not the thing I want to be remembered by. But that's what it is. Judas, in all his meekness, in all his gentleness, took the gospel of Jesus and stood firm in his faith until death. Now, if you remember, Simon did it too. So Simon's passion for Jesus wasn't the thing that led him towards martyrdom. And Judas's gentleness wasn't. It was the fact that he believed in Jesus enough and completely that nothing was going to change that. So the question is, what do these men teach us? What can we learn from them? Well, first, I believe that James teaches us that even in obscurity, we are fully known and celebrated by Jesus. I don't know where you're at tonight, but you might be the type of person that just always feels like you're backstage. 
You never feel like you're in the lights like this. You, you never feel like you're the one up front. And you know what? Maybe for you, that's totally okay. Maybe you're like, you know what? I never want to be up there. I never want to be the one in charge. I never want to be the one, to, you know, where the buck stops with. I, I just, I want to serve God behind the scenes. And, and, you know, you might feel, you might have moments where you feel like that obscurity means that you can't serve Jesus the same way. But James teaches us very clearly that Jesus celebrated him. Like I said before, there is never an indication that Jesus ever feels badly about choosing James as a disciple. There is never the indication by any other New Testament writer that James was not a very good guy, or, or maybe Jesus should have picked somebody who was better, because James, what a bump on the log, man. Like, nothing. He never said anything. He was a disciple. He was an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus, and he mattered. And Jesus loved him. And Jesus called him and named him and continued to walk with him until the day of his death, resurrection, and then ascension. And James was entrusted to take the gospel into all of the world. Next, I believe that Simon teaches us that our past doesn't dictate our future. And that God will transform our passions to align with his purpose. Simon was the type of guy that wasn't scared of anything. The type of guy that would stand up against the Romans and say, my God is bigger than you, and I will hunt you down. But he was misguided. But Jesus doesn't look at him and go, oh, Simon, man, you're just, you're too nuts, dude. Like, I can't deal with this. I'm trying to move, like, make a movement here, and you're just going to create waves. He says, come. Let me redirect your passions. Let me redirect the things that you are so incredibly zealous for. Let me show you how you can use them to further God's kingdom. Third, Judas teaches us that compassion and mercy will be met with the full support of Jesus Christ himself. You know, maybe you're the type of person that you really are gentle and you're meek. And you look at strong people. You look at people that are bold and courageous and you go, man, I wish I was more like that. I wish I could stand up for my faith, but I'm just so scared. I'm so gentle. I, I, I don't, I don't want to cause any waves. I don't, I don't want to do anything. Listen, Jesus chose Judas. Jesus loved Judas. He responds to him with the grace that says, you are doing exactly what you are supposed to do, my son. Here we see three very different men, all called to the gospel. And these three men collectively prove without a doubt in my mind that God uses completely ordinary people in remarkable ways. They are living proof of what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Just think for a second how crazy this story is. Jesus chose us. God chose human beings as broken and sinful and messed up and confused and misunderstood as we are to take his message of salvation into the world. I have been studying the Bible and this faith for a long time. That one still baffles me. It still blows my mind that he takes completely ordinary, typical, basic, common people like me and uses us for his glory. That is remarkable. And so if you're here tonight and you're wondering if God can use you, 
Maybe you're brand new to this faith. Maybe you've been in it for a really long time. Maybe you're somewhere in between, and you're sitting here, and you're wondering, or maybe you've had those thoughts, can God use me? The answer is yes. It's a resounding yes that sings out from every single page of this book. Men and women who were imperfect, who didn't have anything amazing to offer, who stood simply believing that God could work through them, and he did amazing things. But it's when we choose to obey and love Jesus. That's the mark for entry. If you want to be used for God, if you want God to work through you and to make a difference in your family and in the world around you, the place that you work, the, the friends that you keep, if you want him to actually work through you, if you want to experience what it's like to be on the side of God, to bring kingdom, the kingdom of heaven to earth, all you need to do is choose to obey love Jesus. Because Jesus takes our most mundane and behind-the-scenes moments and reminds us that they are infused by the Holy Spirit. Whether you clean up after somebody, whether you simply just sit on a park bench and listen to someone cry, whether you roll up cables or you write blogs, you do whatever it is that you Jesus tells us that he infuses that activity with the Holy Spirit. And he uses it for his glory. Jesus reminds us that our little gestures of kindness and compassion are met with his approval and celebration. I just can't help but imagine that when we somehow partner with Jesus and we do something even small and kind and compassionate in his name, that the hosts of heaven erupt in praise. Because we partner with Jesus. So you need to know tonight that no matter what you do, if you do it for God, if you do it for Jesus, you will be met with approval, and mercy, and love, and support. I believe that Jesus can take also those of us that are fiercely loyal, that are fiery and passionate, something other than Jesus, that he can take that and he can redirect it for his glory and his purposes so we can join his cause. So maybe you're here tonight and, and maybe you're really into something like that other people think is weird and you have no idea how God could ever use that. And we see it in Simon. Jesus says, come. Let me redirect that passion. Let me show you how you can use it for my glory. He can take even the most fiery and temperamental of us, thank God, and use us and mold us into instruments of peace and love. That's remarkable. And so my friends, just like the disciples, ordinary people like you and me are called upon by Jesus and trusted to carry his message into all of the world. To bring the only medicine that will cure the disease of sin that relentlessly pursues us. To partner with Jesus Christ himself. Just as you are. Just as you are. Of course he doesn't want you to stay that way. But he didn't come to the disciples and tell them, you need to do all of these things before you can serve me. He says, put your fishing net down. Father, thank you. Thank you that you call 
all simple and ordinary people like me and like us in Jewish service to partner with you, to work with you, and to bring a hope that this world desperately needs. God, tonight I pray for each person that's hearing the sound of my voice. That tonight you would remind each one of them that you have a unique purpose and mission for their lives. And it doesn't matter what they're like because you can do amazing things with very simple people. Thank you, God, that you chose us. Thank you, Lord, that you chose these, these men to be your disciples that we can look back on and we can learn about. God, for the, for the people in Scripture, the men and the women all throughout these pages, the men and the women of history that have gone before us that have shown us what it means to follow you and to be passionate about what you've done. It reminds me that none of us are too far from being used by you. None of us are too far to be loved by you. We praise you, Father, and we love you. Pray that you be with us the rest of this week, wherever we go, and whatever we do, that we do it for our eyes first.